So welcome tonight. Welcome to ACAP. We are adult children of aging parents. So ACAP is a collaboration of local chapters in Pennsylvania. We are located in Pennsylvania tonight and we also have chapters in North Carolina. So everybody's gonna be joining us tonight. ACAP, as you can see, offers information, resources and support for our community, for adult children of aging parents as they care for their parents and themselves. We have educational programs each month. And again, the programs are designed to help adult children of our aging parents, but it's open to anyone. So our ACAP educational programs, typically they are held in person. And due to COVID, we had to do things virtual. So all of our chapters are collaborating, which has been really great. And we've been able to bring a lot of information together and support one another. So now we're also able to do one or two educational programs a month. And we're using Zoom and Facebook Live platforms. And again, we're, we will be visiting and meeting in person again once some restrictions are lifted. We have a website, www.acapcommunity.org. If you happen to miss a program, you want to see it again, you want to share it with a friend, log on to the website and all of our information is there. Again, some more information about our ACAP website and monthly evites. Log on to the website. If there's a chapter in your area, once you get to the website, you can click on local chapter and the drop down list, click the local chapter that's relevant to you. And then you can click on the contact us. There's an area for your name and address. And if there's not a chapter near you, take a look around the site. Once again, you can still provide your name and email address and we can get you information uh, regarding any of the resources that we have. And here's a list of some of our local chapters. We do have a chapter in North Carolina. Here's the email addresses. Hickory and Pennsylvania Center County. That's where we are affiliated with. We are ACAP Center County. And just so you're aware that when you provide us with your contact information, none of that is shared or sold to any other organizations, your information will never be shared with anyone else. It's strictly used for ACAP. And here we have it. Good information is global, caring is local. So we'd like to thank our sponsors tonight. So here in Center County, we have our sponsors at Penn State Health, Foxdale Village, Grain Hospice, Juniper and Compass, Home Instead. And tonight we have Steinbacher Goodall and Yurchek sponsoring tonight's event, which are also our speakers. Jenna and Kristen will be talking in a little bit. We have Guilford County, North Carolina as well. We'd like to thank them. It's one of our newest chapters. And we have ACAP Hickory, North Carolina. We have ACAP Statesville, North Carolina. There's our sponsors listed there as well. And then Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And thank you for sponsoring and getting this valuable information out to the people who need it the most. 
And so without further ado, tonight's ACAP presentation is brought to you by Steinbacher Goodall and Yurchek. So Jenna is on as, as well as Kristen and I'll let them take it from here and do the introductions. And as always, if you have any questions, please put them in the chat box or in the Q&A section. So we'll let Kristen take it away. Okay, well, thanks Holly. Um, and welcome everybody. We're glad you were able to join us this evening. Um, we are going to spend a little bit of time this evening um, talking about legal and financial documents that everybody needs. Now, Jenna and I added some fun twists to this as well um, to talk about different topics, um, different conversations that we should all be having as we enter our second half of life. So first up, let's have Jenna go ahead and introduce herself. Mm -hmm. Well, first I wanna mention that I'm an attorney from Steinbacher Goodall and Yurchak. Kristen is a long-term care planner and certified Medicaid planner. And she'll talk to you a little bit more about her background. But basically, Kristen and I work together on most of our files to make sure that we're taking care of all of our clients' legal concerns and also their long-term care concerns. We're an elder law firm which means that we help people plan for their second half of life. You know, whether that's entering retirement, planning for long-term care or planning for passing away. So basically when we take a client on, we're with them for the rest of their lives. We even end up working with clients, you know, their children or grandchildren to make sure that any transitions that come up down the road are, you know, we make them easier for everybody because we know what's going on and we know the families. So uh, we should give you a little disclaimer before we get started that all the legal documents and the planning that Kristen and I are going to be talking about, it all varies state to state. So it would be best to meet with an elder law attorney in your area to discuss what you need to be ready for the future. It might look different in where you are compared to where we are in Pennsylvania. So as I mentioned, my name's Jenna Franks. I actually began my legal career in Florida and then eventually moved back home to be with family in Pennsylvania. Um, just a side note, Kristen and I do work with a lot of veterans, and unfortunately, we see more and more clients affected by some type of dementia. So for this reason, we both became certified dementia practitioners. And actually, Holly, I believe you are as well, right? Yes, you are correct. So all three of us are certified dementia practitioners. Um, that's really the background on me. Kristen, did you want to give a little bit more background information on yourself? Sure. So again, I'm Kristen. I am a long-term care planner. I'm one of the few certified Medicaid planners in Pennsylvania. As Jenna mentioned, I'm also a certified dementia practitioner. Um, additionally to that, I took um, extra training to become an Alzheimer's disease and dementia care trainer, which allows me to train other professionals to become certified dementia practitioners. I've been with Steinbacher Goodall and Yurchak for just about 10 years, which is crazy. Um, and prior to that, I worked for the Area Agency on Aging for five years, helping um, with in-home care, specifically through the waiver program. So a little bit about us. Um, what we're going to do is we have a couple different topics we thought we'd touch base on. Um, Jen and I 
definitely prefer very laid back conversations. Um, we like it to be very open. So what we'll do is we'll touch base on a couple different topics. Jenna's going to start us off. I'll come in about halfway through, and then we will um, look at the chat box, question and answer, put any questions you have in there, and we'll go ahead and we'll address any questions that you have. So Jenna, we'll let you take it away with topic number one, which is what happens if you cannot make your own decisions? All right, thank you. So best case scenario, if you can't make your own decisions, you have good powers of attorney in place that will allow somebody else to be able to step in and make those decisions for you. A power of attorney is just a written legal document that authorizes somebody else to be able to make healthcare and financial decisions for you. Now, powers of attorney are very state specific. So if you do put these documents together in one state and then you move to another state, it's highly advised that you do meet with an elder law attorney in the new state to make sure that your powers of attorney are either still valid or you can update them at that time. Now, typically your family cannot just step in and automatically start making financial decisions for you. So it's a great idea to sign powers of attorney authorizing someone to be able to do this for you. You never know when something could happen where you'd be unable to make decisions for yourself. So it's always a good idea to have those backup documents just in case something would happen. Now, let's just say, you know, worst case scenario that you don't have powers of attorney and this happens. You're not able to make decisions for yourself. Well, then your family may have to seek what's called a legal guardianship or it's also known as a conservatorship in some states. This is basically a legal process where your loved ones may have to ask a judge to appoint someone to be able to make decisions for you. This is a timely and costly process and no one wants to do this to their family. So it's best to put the documents in place ahead of time. I did receive a question before our presentation today that asked if it's okay to print documents off the internet to save a little bit of money. And I completely understand that sometimes these documents can be costly from an attorney's office. And, you know, to be straightforward with you, sometimes the forms you get off the internet may suffice for what you need. However, these forms are typically very standard and they might not work for everyone or every situation. For example, Kristen and I deal with what we call crisis situations all the time. This is basically when we have a client that's entering a nursing home right now, or they're ready to enter a nursing home. The family typically calls us in a panic, and they're worried about losing every last penny to the nursing home. Kristen and I have to sit down and figure out what to do to save some of their money. Oftentimes what we're doing is we need their power, the person's power of attorney to move money around, whether it's from spouse to spouse, parent to child, or from a client to a trust. But the thing is, all of this moving money around is considered gifting. In order to have the power of attorney move this money around to protect it from long-term care costs, we need very specific language in the power of attorney in Pennsylvania. The problem is only about 80 to 85%, maybe even, even more of the powers of attorney that we come across uh, do not have the language that we need. So basically about 10 to 15% of the powers of attorney we see are actually good enough to do the planning that we need to do. If the language is not in the power of attorney, then we can't do the planning and the family risks losing so much more money to pay for nursing home care. So what I want you guys to take away from this is you need to have good powers of attorney in place to avoid these situations and preferably meet with an elder law attorney to put those documents in place. Some of the conversations that you should be having with your loved ones about these documents is, um, 
you know, who, who, may, who you should be appointing as your power of attorney. You know, it could be a child, it could be your spouse, it could be another family member. It doesn't even have to be a family member. It could be um, somebody that you're really close with, whether that's a friend or a neighbor. So it's, these are conversations that you should be having. And then the person or the people that you actually appoint in those positions, it would probably be a good idea to talk to them and make sure that first of all, they're comfortable with taking that over if they ever need to, but also it would be good for them to know that way if something does happen to you, then it's an easy transition for the person that you're appointing. They know that, that you've appointed them. I would also talk to them about where you're keeping these documents. That would be important as well. Um, Kristen, can you think of any other conversation pieces or anything I'm missing as far as the powers of attorney go? No, Jenna, I think that was fantastic. Um, just a little story because it came up today. Holly and I actually met with a family today. Um, they're 10 children and, um, you know, they wanted to do the planning for their parent. Um, but as we went through everything, you know, it was determined that mom's power of attorney wasn't good enough. And the one son, he, it was, it was cute because he was like, so angry. He was like, this attorney was terrible. I can't believe we hired him. And I was like, well, no, he did a good job. Like everything's legal in the document, but because we work with the Medicaid office, the department of human services, there's certain things in the documents that have to be there to do this type of planning. But just seeing that because now their mom isn't able to sign a new power of attorney. So that opens up a whole nother can of worms. And um, it's just sad um, to, to run into this because we do, like you mentioned, 80, 85% of the documents don't have the language that we need. And it's just unfortunate. And I'd like to say too, my background, I'm a nurse and my background is hospice. And I have really grown to appreciate estate planning, power of attorney planning, mm -hmm. and having those documents in place. So many times I have come with families that, that one, they don't have the documents, or two, when they prepared the documents, it was correct. But over time, something has changed. Families, dynamics change, people get divorced, people move out of the area. And there were several occasions where I could not honor the wishes because I didn't have the proper documents in place. So if you take anything home tonight, that's the one piece is make sure everybody, you're never too young to get, um, you know, power of attorneys drafted and, and have your wishes explained mm -hmm. so they can be honored. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I just saw that we had a question. Does this include being able to make medical decisions? Mm -hmm. So yes, in most states, we have more of the healthcare related powers of attorney. These are going to vary state to state. Um, it could be a healthcare power of attorney. Um, there's also a living will for end of life decisions. This could all be put together in what's called like an advanced healthcare directive. So it might look a little bit different state to state or even from one attorney's office to another. But basically, you should be appointing somebody to be, to be able to make healthcare decisions for you. Also, somebody to be able to take over finances if that's necessary. So healthcare and finances, those are the two big ones that powers of attorney usually address. So good question. So let's go ahead and move on at this point then to topic two. If you guys have any additional questions about powers of attorney, please, please go ahead and put those in the chat and I'll still address those. But so topic number two, how do you make sure your loved ones get your assets once you pass away? Most of us know that a will will state who your beneficiaries are to be and how, how much you want to actually go to each of the beneficiaries. So it is important to have a will. 
But I always like to touch on this topic because most people feel that when they actually put a will together, that that's going to address everything. You know, they don't need to, they don't need to uh, look at anything else. They just need to have that will in place. It's important to understand that your will may not cover all of your assets when you pass away. So for example, if you have accounts with beneficiary designations like IRAs or life insurance, it's likely that those accounts will go to the beneficiaries that you've appointed, regardless of what your will says. Additionally, real estate is its own can of worms. Real estate varies state to state. So if you do have real estate and you're cur curious what's actually going to happen when you to that real estate when you pass away, it's a good idea to meet with an attorney and just figure out how that's going to look in the future. Your will, like I said, might not cover what you actually think it's going to cover. And I did see. Jenna, there was a question about um, two different powers of attorneys or two different documents. That's a great question. That is a great question. So not necessarily. There are still quite a few attorneys that actually put everything in one document. So it does not have to necessarily be more than one. I'll be honest, our, our office actually puts together four powers mm -hmm. of attorney. Um, our financial power of attorney alone is about 20 pages. So if we tried to put everything together for you, it would be like a 50 page document. It would be pretty um, but there are attorneys that still put everything in one document and that might be perfectly legal. So it could be one, it could be several documents, as long as it's addressing the healthcare needs and also the financial needs. Good question. Um, as far as the conversations go when it comes to assets when you pass away, again, it's probably a good idea to talk to your executor that you're appointing, the person who's going to be in charge. They can, they're also known as a personal representative. Um, the person who's basically going to pay any debts or expenses that you have when you pass away, and then they'll make sure that any money that's left over goes to your beneficiaries. So it might be a good idea to just let them know that they're actually appointed in the document um, so that they have a heads up. It's also a good idea to let them know um, where you're keeping your documents. And actually that raises another question. Where should you keep these documents? Mm -hmm. So our best advice is to not put these in a safe deposit box. Other attorneys might have different suggestions, but from what we've found, it's not a good idea to put these documents in a safe deposit box because if something happens to you, whether it's you being una unable to make decisions or if you pass away, oftentimes the bank can be difficult to work with you know, for your loved ones, for your power of attorney, for your executor. So rather than do that, we usually recommend that you put these documents in a fireproof safe at home. I've also had clients put these in the freezer, you know, because sometimes fireproof safes can be a little expensive. So that's another option, but we usually recommend a fireproof safe. Anything that you guys had to add on wills or beneficiaries or anything? I know of families that are low income and rarely can afford an attorney. Are there grants or programs available for these folks? Very good question. So typically, yes, uh, there are like uh, pro bono um, nonprofit organizations that can be willing to take these cases. You do have to qualify based on your income and your assets. So I would look for a facility in your county that's um, that's willing to take those. I know um, in Center, Center County, we have Midpen Legal Services. Um, usually there are attorneys that will do this pro bono as long as you do qualify those. So that's a good question. I, we've had several of those lately. So topic number three, 
are trusts only for people who have a lot of money? I love to answer this question because so often I mention trust to clients and they look at me baffled because they don't have millions of dollars. They feel that trusts are only for very wealthy people. And believe it or not, this is not the case. So trust can be used for a variety of purposes. And oftentimes what we're looking at is your health, your goals, your assets, your inner family structure to figure out whether a trust would be a good option. Trusts are not necessarily for everybody. So we don't just recommend a trust for everybody across the board. We're really looking to see if it could be a good option for you. Two of the most common types of trusts that you'll see are irrevocable and revocable trusts. And again, those the use of trusts are very state specific. So in Pennsylvania, we use irrevocable trusts when we're protecting assets from long-term care costs. So we use those very, very often. Then we use revocable trusts for reasons like tax purposes, blended families, and to avoid probate. Um, I know when I practiced in Florida, basically everybody had a revocable living trust because they just wanted to avoid that probate process. So some states are like that. In Pennsylvania, the probate process is actually um, not quite so time consuming and it's not so expensive. So we're a little less likely to create a revocable trust just for that purpose, but we still do that from time to time. The most important thing to understand with trusts is that you want to work with an attorney who thoroughly understands how trusts work. If you don't, then you could be spending a lot of money on a trust that either doesn't work, or you could end up spending way more money in taxes or legal fees if the trust doesn't work the way it's supposed to. So there's a lot of different things to look at when we're, when we're setting up trusts. Like I said, there's uh, tax consequences. Um, the money may not be as available as you thought it was, or it might not be protecting your, your assets from the cost of long-term care. So you definitely wanna work with somebody who knows what they're doing. But to kind of go back to what I was saying, you do not need a ton of money for a trust to be a good option. We've had clients with less than $100,000 in their name, and we've used trust for those clients um, to protect as much of the money as possible. So, I mean, you don't necessarily have to have millions of dollars. Keep trust in the back of your mind as an option, depending on what your plan looks like and what your attorneys are recommending. When it comes to the conversations involved in this, I would say my best advice is when there's a trust involved and you're involving other people in that trust, I like, I like to have everybody who's involved in the trust in the meetings with me, to, just so that everybody's on the same page, they understand why we're putting the trust in place and they understand what's gonna happen down the road. What I find most often is that we'll set this trust up, you know, because the parents thought it was a great idea and it, you know, with their, with the parents' goals and everything, it, it really did match, but then we'll meet with children, you know, after the parents have passed away and the children have no idea, you know, what the parents' goals were or why they did this. And they get a little upset sometimes because they just have no clue why we did what we did, or sometimes that we even put a trust in place. So I just think the communication there is really key to have everybody involved. So question is, if there's money left over in the trust, what happens to it when I die? That's a good question. So basically, there's like a built-in will within the trust that says where the assets left over will go, whether they remain in trust for a period of time or whether the trust ends at a certain period. 
and the, and the remaining assets would be paid out to whoever the beneficiaries are. So typically a trust is going to avoid that probate process, that court process when you pass away. And then we have another question. What about listing a child on a will who is only 17? How does that work? That's a good question. So we can still do that. We, we list minor beneficiaries all the time, but what you, you, you can't actually have money go directly to a minor beneficiary. So what we do is we appoint a custodian so that if the, minor, if the child is a minor when they're entitled to an inheritance, then this custodian that we appoint will monitor the child's inheritance until they reach a certain age. Now it has to be at least age 18, but what we find is that most of our clients would not be comfortable with their children actually having control of their inheritance until at least age 25. So usually that's age 25, but you can still do that, but you have to put somebody else in charge until that child reaches at least age 18. That's a good question. Some states may not allow that, um, but I know that's, that's what we do at our office in Pennsylvania too. All right, so then let's talk about topic number four. And this is something that Kristen and I like to bring up because I think a lot of people don't realize that it's actually an issue or it could be an issue down the road. So if your child receives some type of government benefits and then you pass away and your child receives an inheritance at that time, that inheritance could disqualify your child from their government benefits. Now, I hope I said that so that it makes sense. Let me know if you guys need me to repeat that. It's a mouthful. But basically, this could raise a huge issue for your child because oftentimes the government benefits are way more valuable than the inheritance itself. Usually what it comes down to is the Medicaid benefits, the health insurance benefits, because those cover so much. So depending on what the child's, um, whatever their condition is, or, you know, whatever their medications are or treatments, a lot of times that can be really, really expensive. So if they don't have those government benefits, they're going to have to pay out of pocket for all those, for all those medical treatments that could really dwindle down their inheritance pretty quickly. Um, there are many types of government benefits, however, and they all work differently. If this is a concern for you or one of your loved ones, my best advice would be to meet with an elder law attorney to see whether this is actually an issue. If your child is receiving government benefits that would be affected by an inheritance, oftentimes your attorney is going to set up what's called a special needs trust. This is just a way to tuck back the inheritance that your child would receive without affecting their government benefits. So they get to keep the government benefits, but they also get to keep the inheritance in a special needs trust. Now, there's a little bit more to that special needs trust, but just know that it's a way that they're able to have both, which is great. The problem is I can't emphasize enough that it's important to set up this type of a trust while you're living. The trust must be set up before the child receiving benefits receives the inheritance. If that doesn't happen and the child receives the inheritance and then we have to do something about it, we can set up a different type of trust. But basically this usually means more money is going to have to be paid back to the state. I don't wanna to get too bogged down in the details of this because benefits planning can be so complex. But if you or a loved one receives government benefits and you want to plan for the future, meet with an elder law attorney and make sure everything is addressed. And um, as far as the conversations go with that, I'm trying to think, um, I'm, special needs or government benefits planning, 
Um, it's really quite a complex type of planning all in its own. There's a lot more to that because depending on what your what uh, the child with special needs or the, that's on government benefits, whatever their condition is, um, you might need other individuals to actually get involved in their situation at some time. You know, depending on how independent they are, you might actually need other people to get involved in case something happens to you. You know, what happens if, if you're not here someday? Do other people need to step in at that point in time? Um, and do you need to start having those conversations with them now? So that would be my best advice is to kind of start thinking through how that's going to look like in the future, you know, if something should happen to you. Kristen, do you have anything to add about that? No, I think you covered it really well. I mean, just to stress that um, so many people don't realize that there's even options until they're receiving an inheritance and they're like, oh my goodness, I'm going to lose my benefits now. Mm -hmm. um, so just kind of spreading the word, making sure that we're all aware that there are options and working with an elder law firm, even though it's a special needs planning issue um, to make sure everything's in good order. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Well, since the majority of what Kristen and I do is dealing with long-term care, we did want to discuss some of the legal and financial documents and planning that is involved with that. So Kristen, do you want to take that from here? Absolutely. So we're going to switch gears a little bit because like as Jenna mentioned, a lot of what we do is planning. Um, so I wanted to spend a little bit of time here in topic five talking about, well, if you actually need long-term care, what are your preferences? So this is a conversation that nobody wants to have. Um, no mother or father or spouse, grandparent wants to have with their family because everybody's staying home and they're going to die in their sleep very healthy, right? Unfortunately, that's not the reality. Um, so it is really important to have a conversation about what your preferences are, um, where you want to receive care, how you want to receive care. Most people, I'm always surprised, don't even realize how many options there are. So a lot of what we do is education. Like we do a lot of seminars like this because we're trying to tell everybody there's options out there, like explore your options, tell us what you want. Um, because a lot of times, Jenna and I will meet with families that say, well, I want to move to this facility. Well, Jenna and I know for a fact, this facility has a $300,000 buy-in plus $10,000 a month of rent. And it's all private pay. And we're looking at their assets and going, oh, we know that's never a reality. So we have to be the bad guys <laughs> and break that down. And that's okay. That's okay. But um, kind of planning for that ahead of time really helps you control what happens moving forward. So it's not in your spouse's um, hands or your children because um, they don't, if they don't know what you want, it makes it really difficult. So this, you know, what levels of care and how you receive care can definitely differ from state to state, but really overall, um, we're looking at in-home care or some type of facility care. So for in-home care, you know, private pay is always an option. You can hire caregivers, you can hire an agency to come in to provide the care for you. Now, one thing I'll mention, because I know we really wanted to focus on legal documents today, is if you are not using an agency, so you have your child, your neighbor, a friend, somebody from church that's providing care for you, 
it is really important to have a care agreement in place. So it's a very simple couple page agreement. Jenna and I do them all the time. Actually, Jenna does them all the time, but <laughs> puts these together all the time for our clients. Um, and really it helps with one liability if the caregivers to get hurt, if you're to get hurt, your loved ones to get hurt. But also for in, in Pennsylvania, it's really important for Medicaid purpose um, because we're gonna talk about here in a few minutes about gifting and how that could really come into play. Now, as I mentioned, private pay is an option, but also there are some Medicaid funded programs to help pay for care. Now that the qualification and what those programs entail will differ state to state, but it is good to know that there are options for the state to help pay for some in-home care for your loved ones. Also, um, most states have adult day centers. Um, here in Pennsylvania, we have also something called the LIFE program. I know there's similar programs in different states called something a little bit different, which is essentially a place where your loved one could go during the day. So we're still living at home, but we're getting out of the house. We are seeing other people, we're having activities, socialization, having um, our medical needs addressed more often. And that's a really great option for those who could really benefit from some socialization, but also for the caregiver, because unfortunately we're seeing a lot younger individuals having health issues. So we might still have a spouse that's working um, or a child that's working that we need to, you know, the, the socialization outside the house and the respite's really a great option. Now, as we know, um, because there's a lot of facilities, sometimes in-home care just isn't enough and we have to look at some sort of facility or community. So there's a variety of different options there. Um, the lowest level of care really is independent living, which is essentially just an apartment in a type of continuing care retirement community or another um, facility. So independent living is just an apartment but essentially you are kind of guaranteeing or hopeful that you will get to age in place where you start. A lot of times we see that in spousal situations where one spouse needs some help, but the other spouse doesn't, but wants to be near their husband and wife. So that's always a really great situation where the spouses maybe can't live together anymore, but they get to stay in the same complex, especially during COVID, especially during our Pennsylvania winters. That's something that we hear all the time. We can't be far from our spouse because we don't want to drive in the winter. There's also personal care homes, um, otherwise known as assisted living facilities, otherwise known as senior living communities. They kind of all blend together, um, but they do actually differ from state to state. So that level of care is when you need some assistance or maybe quite a bit of assistance. We see individuals who live in this level of care um, need only meals and medication assistance. We also see individuals who live at this level of care need a higher level assistance, maybe even some memory support. Now, there are certain triggers where uh, um, somebody cannot stay at this level of care. So maybe they um, are having a lot of falls or they're wandering or their cognition or physical impairments are too much. And that's where the skilled nursing homes come into play. So that's the highest level of care for those who have a lot of cognitive issues or physical impairments. So a skilled nursing home can cover everything. Whatever your needs are, they're going to be able to handle that. 
Now we're also starting to see a lot of memory care units pop up here in Pennsylvania. And I shouldn't even say unit, facilities, like standalone facilities where they are just focusing on um, patients who have memory care issues like dementia or Parkinson's, whatever it may be. I think these are absolutely wonderful facilities because the staff are really trained on just one thing. So their goal is to make sure those that have some cognitive impairments are getting what they need, whether it's socialization, the activities, whatever. Um, it's really a really great option. I'm glad to see a lot more of that level of care coming out. Lastly, we um, here in actually our center county office, we have a, quite a few continuing care retirement communities, otherwise known as CCRCs. Um, I don't know why it has to be a mouthful, but it is. Um, they are a really great option. So CCRCs really are designed to age in place, starting all the way from independent living, progressing to personal care, progressing to skilled. Now, the thing to know about CCRCs is while they are great, there are a lot of different ways that they can be designed. So sometimes you have a large buy-in, but then they will um, guarantee that you get to stay there for your life. Sometimes you have a large buy-in and then when you run out of money, you have to leave. Some of them no buy-in, but when you run out of money, you have to leave. Um, so it's really important to know how the CCRCs work to make sure it's actually a good for you. There seems to be a big gap between assisted living and memory care and skilled nursing. There used to be intermediate care facilities which filled that gap. Mm -hmm. Perhaps the licensing has changed mm -hmm. and that's no longer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I can say like here in Pennsylvania, that has actually changed. So we used to have assisted living facilities. That's kind of go, gone away in Pennsylvania. There's maybe only five actual assisted living facilities in Pennsylvania because of licensing and requirements. So, but what I have also saw is over the last 10 years or so is how personal care home senior living facilities have been able to um, help a broader group of people. When I used to work at the Office of Aging, because I did a lot of level of care assessments, it was very clear cut and dry. I went out, I was like, you meet the nursing home or you don't, yes or no. It's actually a lot more complicated right now uh, or now because these personal care home senior living facilities can really help people with a lot that have a lot more um, or higher needs than before. So bef like previously 10 years ago, at least in Pennsylvania, you know, if you had a cognitive impairment, you were out, you went to a skilled nursing home. If you could not um, transfer ambulate, you were out, you went to a skilled nursing home. A lot of these personal care home senior living facilities are now accommodating that. We're actually seeing a lot more people stay at that middle level of care a lot longer now, which is great because most of the time it's a lot less costly as well. But that definitely does vary state for state how those programs work and how they're paid for, which is actually what we're going to talk about next. Topic number six is, um, do you have any plans in place of how to pay for your long-term care? So we just talked about some options. Now, a couple of these things are um, federal programs. A couple of these items are state specific. So the first one, of course, anybody, private pay. You can private pay for your care no matter where you are at home in a community. Now here in Pennsylvania, the average cost of care for the highest level of care, the skilled nursing home is over $11,000 a month. So, um, you know, you can certainly private pay, but you could quickly become impoverished potentially paying for your long-term care out of your pocket. 
So veterans benefits are also a fantastic option. Now this is a federal program, so this doesn't change from state to state. So if you're a veteran, a spouse of a veteran or a widow of a veteran, you could be eligible for an aid and attendance pension benefit that could pay up to, or maybe even a little over $2,000 a month to help cover care costs, as long as you meet the medical, financial, and asset, asset and income qualifications for that program. Long-term care insurance is another great option. So a couple things, if you already have a long-term care insurance policy or are considering purchasing a long-term care insurance policy, it's really important to know what that policy actually covers. What is the daily benefit? So we see a lot of policies that are $100 a day. Well, nursing home costs about $364 a day on average in Pennsylvania. So $100 a day is helpful. It's not enough. So we have to put together other strategies to help cover that shortfall. Does it cover in-home care or just facility care? Or does it cover both? What's the maximum benefit? So it's really important to know what the policies include. Um, Jenna and I spend a lot of time reviewing policies with our clients because, especially our older clients, because there was a time where everybody bought long-term care insurance policies um, and sometimes didn't really quite understand what they actually provided. Medicare. So Medicare is really important to touch base on. So Medicare was designed as a short-term solution to long-term care. Many of us think that if we need nursing home care, Medicare is going to pay for up to 100 days. But the key is up to. Most often Medicare recipients only receive about 20 days of coverage prior to be get, being cut off from their benefits. So it's really a surprise on day 18 or 19 when they get the call from the nursing home saying, guess what, Medicare's ending tomorrow, here's your bill for the first month for $11,000. That's really stressful and overwhelming for those families. Now, the only long-term solution for paying for long-term care is Medicaid. Now, I'm not really going to get into the specifics of Medicaid today, really because it's, it's so state-specific. So Medicaid is a federal program, but the states really get to decide how they allocate those dollars within guidelines. It's very different. I know here in Pennsylvania to down in North Carolina, even with our surrounding states here, it's very, very different. And it's always changing and new things are coming up. But Medicaid does have strict income and asset guidelines and thresholds. But it's really important to know that even think, even though you might think, well, you know, my husband needs care right now. My mom needs care right now. There's no way they'll qualify for Medicaid. The nursing home said I have to spend every penny and then once it's all gone, they'll qualify me. It's really important to know that's not the case. Um, we work with families every single day that are over the asset, over the income guidelines for Medicaid. We help protect assets and get that individual qualified for Medicaid right away or in the very near future. So let's talk about topic number seven, which does go into the Medicaid a little bit, a little deeper. Um, are you planning to gift your house or your assets to your children? So this is probably the most common question that Jenna and I receive um, or request. I want to just gift my house to my child. So the conversation is, well, let me tell you why that's not the best idea. Um, it used to be. Years ago, everybody gifted their house to their child once they hit a certain age. That was just what you did. 
We don't love to do that. We love to use those irrevocable trusts that Jenna talked about. The reason we don't love to gift outright to your children isn't because we think they're bad. They are most often wonderful, wonderful children, but there's a lot of risks involved for you and for your children. So the first reason is what we call the four D's, divorce, debt, disability, and death. So let's say you want to give your house to your son and then he gets divorced. You're still living in that house, but now his ex-wife has claim on half of the house. What if your son, you give the house to your son and he has creditors or debt? Well, then the house is available for his creditors. What if you give your house to your son and he becomes disabled and needs some type of care? Well, then he might not be able to receive the benefits that he needs. Or what if, God forbid, you gave your house to your son, he passes away and you are still living there. Does he have a will? What does his will say? What if he doesn't have a will? There's so much to risk by not by outright gifting to your children. On top of the four D's, there's filial responsibility. Now, this is something that definitely could change state for state. But here in Pennsylvania, there is a rule that says your children can be held financially responsible to pay for their parents' nursing home bills. And the biggest reason is Medicaid. There's the five-year look back. And I'm sure everybody's heard of that. That is a federal rule. That is every place you go. There's a five-year look back. That is the five years prior to you requesting medical assistance or Medicaid to pay for your nursing home care. The state and the federal government wants to make sure you have not made any gifts in excess of $500 a month. Most people think it's much more, but for Medicaid, it's only $500 a month. So if we outright gift to our children, whether it's a house or an asset, you know, bank account, whatever it may be, we need care within the next five years because life happens. Sometimes the crisis happens much sooner than we expected. Then essentially your child could really be put at risk and your asset could be put at risk. So the trust really is the best option. So when that conversation comes up at our office, we're always saying, no, 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 outright gifting. Let's talk about why the trust really is a better option. And to clarify, that's $500 total. It's not $500 per children or per, you know, Okay. That's right, Holly. You're right. Yeah. And a lot of people think that, you know, it's much more and it really is just $500 total. Now I should say, if you've made gifts and then you need care, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to wait five years to receive the care, but there will be a penalty imposed. And that, and that penalty does change state for state um, based on the average cost of care. Okay, well, let's slide into our last topic, which is topic number eight. And I might even have Holly if she wants to add anything in here. So what if somebody gets sick or is diagnosed with dementia? So um, we are not only an elder law firm, we actually focus with dementia planning as well. So we think it's really important that as we enter our second half of life, we um, are able to help families navigate whatever it may be. And as I mentioned earlier, we're seeing a lot more dementia um, or Parkinson's or whatever the diagnosis may be. So we felt like it was really important for us to specialize in this, to be able to do a really good job for our clients and our community. So the really, the, you know, the most important thing is as we enter our second half life, work with a law firm, an elder law firm that focuses in dementia. You know, also it's so important that all your professionals work together, your legal professionals, medical professionals, 
financial professionals. We all need to be on the same page to put a really good plan together for you to make sure you're taken care of now and in the future. And then your spouse or beneficiaries are taken care of as well. Now, one thing that's really important to mention is that even if you did not plan in advance, and I would always recommend putting the plan together while you're still healthy and can still make all the decisions, but sometimes we don't do that. And that's okay because there's still options. Now those options can definitely vary from state to state, but there's still options on way you can protect some or all of your assets if you get sick and did not put a plan together. Now, Holly, I just want to open it up and see if there's anything you wanted to add in this topic, because really, um, Holly, um, at our office, she when she works for office, she this is really what she specializes in. And she really does a lot of um, she works with Jenna and I day in and day out with those with dementia or other types of diagnosis. Yes. So and thank you. And and this is true and dear to my heart. And and it is true, like financially, healthcare, legal and just navigating the medical system. And that's what I really help the clients do is understand the options that are available, especially with a dementia diagnosis. And what we always talk about, it is never too early to get started. If you think, you know, or if you notice a loved one is starting to have some memory concerns, or you have some memory, you notice this start now. Um, and they don't have to have a confirmed diagnosis. So if you get nothing else out of this program is your power of attorneys, make sure that they are signed and updated, especially if you're beginning to realize that they do have some memory difficulties. Say for instance, like you're, you don't live in town and you come home and you notice there's dents in the car. That's like a red flag. Okay, why are those dents occurring? That's kind of, uh, that does two things, one, um, they're driving and maybe they shouldn't, but to the and they're not remembering. So you're looking for key uh, signs and symptoms that there could be something a little bit more happening. And then make sure your power of attorneys are up to date so you can make decisions for your loved ones, because we need that. We need, I need that when I work with the healthcare power of attorney, so you can make healthcare decisions for them, because we're not exactly sure how fast the dementia diagnosis will progress. And then we really work with families to make sure that they're getting a proper diagnosis. There was many times that I worked in a facility and we would send somebody to the ER and they come back with a dementia diagnosis, but you can't diagnose dementia in one ER visit. It's a couple different visits. And we work with our families to develop a plan. You know, when you go to the doctors, what questions to ask, what conversations to have. So, um, and we do offer a support group through the Alzheimer's Association. We'll put that link in the chat later. And um, that's a group that's available. We set, we chat because nobody's alone. And we, you know, we just talk about the, the different op options that are available. Because as we all know, this isn't cookie cutter. What works for one person doesn't work for the next. So we really just make it individualized and help people through the process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Holly. Yeah, we're really lucky to have Holly on board with us. I was just saying, um, some of you might have heard us at the very beginning of the conversation. I was like, I don't know what we did before Holly joined us. Like, <laughs> So we're so happy to have her and her expertise to um, join our team to make sure we're doing the best for our clients and our community. Thank you for participating and thank you for the Steinbacher Goodall and your check for sponsoring tonight's event. And ACAP wants to thank you for joining us tonight.
And we're going to hang out for a few minutes if anybody has any questions I that do, maybe have come up. Mm -hmm. I do see in the Q&A, if someone has been designated as power of attorney and no longer wants to continue in that role, what steps do they have to do to follow to relinquish their power of attorney? The best thing to do is to put it in writing and actually give it to the person that you're serving as power of attorney for. Um, sometimes that's not always possible when the person has dementia or they're not able to understand um, you know, what's going on. Uh, hopefully there's a successor power of attorney uh, appointed. You could also give them notice that you don't wanna serve as power of attorney anymore. So basically they're on board, it's their, it's their turn, but they would need something signed in writing from you to be able to do that. So that's a good question. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. we do, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just, I saw another question in the chat that how do you encourage your parents to start this process when they keep putting it off? That is another fantastic question. Um, you know, we deal with that all the time and I'll be honest, most of the younger clients that we work with get to us because we helped their parents um, or their grandparents because they realized how um, chaotic and hectic it can be <laughs> if you wait to do the types of plan. So, um, an example that we kind of run into a lot in this situation is we'll get a client, a uh, child, I'm sorry, a child to call us and say like, you know, I'm power of attorney for mom, or maybe I'm not power of attorney for mom and dad. And, you know, they really need to do this. I know they need to do this. Will you talk to me about it? So we'll talk to that child about it, about what they should be doing, what we recommend. And almost always then, like always we will say, why don't we schedule another phone call with mom and dad? And almost always that mom and dad gets in that phone call with us. And then we end up helping them. And cause I think it's a hard balance when you're a child to approach the subject. I know with my own parents, like it's hard when you're a child, I do this every day and it's still hard for me to talk about with them. So I always say, put the burden on us. Let Jenna and I meet with them. Let us talk to them about what's at risk if we don't have a good plan in place. And so I think that's the a good approach. Like if you're a child um, or a loved one, find a law, an older law firm that you're comfortable with, talk to them and then push the burden on them. That's what we're here for. We're here to have those conversations. And usually it's just a matter of educating them, you yes. know, letting them know the possible risks that there are. And a lot of times um, we'll have clients watch some of our seminars or read through some of the materials that we send out. Um, and that will kind of get them um, intrigued so that they do come to meet with us as well. Conversationproject.org is also a fantastic resource. Which I've seen that. That is, that is really great. So check that out as well for different conversations um, to kind of start getting them engaged in this process. Mm -hmm. And um, the one thing that I use too with um, getting, getting conversations started is if there's been an event in the family or in the community, mm -hmm. that's a good way to start. So, you know, like I'm talking to mom and hey, mom, do you remember Jane down the street? Um, you heard that she went into the hospital, she broke her hip, you know, and, and it's just a way to get the conversation started. And I hear that, you know, she didn't have some papers in place and they're struggling on, you know, paying for her care what do we have set up for, you know, us in case something like that would happen? Or, you know, what would you want done, mom? You know, Jane's in the hospital mm -hmm. now. Like, what, what would you want to have done? So you can use like 
uh, situations that have happened within your family to get it started and to get people thinking. And this isn't a once and done conversation. It's not like you sit down at the table over Thanksgiving and pull up the chair and say, okay, I want to know who you want to do your financial documents. I want to know who you want your power of attorney to be. It's not once and done. It's you sort of sprinkle it. And sometimes you got to do a little bit of it and then pull back and reapproach a little bit more, pull back and reapproach. And also find out like what's the pressing issue, what needs to be addressed right now, get that situated and then start working mm-hmm. towards some other goals. And usually once you get one started, the rest will sort of start to you know, filter through, especially when there's been something that happens that's medical. Oftentimes that's a trigger to get people talking about everything. Who assists with taxes of estates, attorneys or accountants? That's a really good question. So it depends on what kind of estate taxes you're talking about. Um, like here in Pennsylvania, um, we have inheritance tax. So attorneys actually complete the Pennsylvania inheritance tax returns. Um, if we're talking about like estate income taxes, then that's going to be the accountant who actually completes them. So different types of taxes will be done by, diff, um, by either attorney or accountant, just depending on which taxes it is we are talking about. Well, thank you, everybody. We are glad that you were able to join us. We hope it was helpful. Um, Never hesitate to reach out if you guys need anything from us. And, um, you know, if you're in North Carolina, we can definitely um, help get you set up with a good elder law firm down there as well. Mm